Well, as uh, Dave said, we're in this series called Zoom Out. One of the core strategies that we have here for accomplishing the mission that God has given to Orchard Hill Church is to engage the Bible. Now, we simply believe that engaging the Bible, we believe research uh, supports this as well, that, that reading the Bible, uh, studying the Bible, applying the truth of the Bible in our lives is the single greatest catalyst to growing our relationship with Jesus. Uh, there's nothing that can help us uh, grow a more intimate relationship with God than to engage the Bible and apply the truths of his word to our lives. Um, we also know that um, reading the Bible isn't always the easiest thing for some of us to do. And so we want to have some strategies that can help us read the Bible. And so one of those is to zoom out and get the big picture so we can maintain some context in this. And the Bible is really one giant cohesive story of God's plan to rescue and redeem the world and to, and to invite us into his family. And it's so important for us to understand this because this is the reality that we live in. Right? We live in this deep truth of this true story that's being told in the Bible. And uh, zooming out to keep a big picture in front of us will help us better understand when we go back in and we look at the words within the context of the verses, within the context of the, of the uh, chapters, within the context of the whole book and the whole Bible. So that's what we're trying to aim to do in this series. And, and one of the ways we zoom out, one of the things that we think will be helpful to you is to remember the six acts that you, we can divide the Bible into. Act one, which was taught about last week, creation in the beginning. Act two, which you'll actually get next week from Ed Baker, is the fall and uh, man's uh, sin and rebellion against God. Act three, a chosen people. God chooses a people for himself, teaches and leads them. And then act four is Jesus. God sends his son. Act five, the church and God's people become the hands and feet of God's mission to a broken world. And act six, as Dave mentioned, new creation, a new heaven and a new earth. And also, as Dave said, that God is the one. It's God's zeal who's going to accomplish and, and write this story and see it through to the end. So this morning, we're taking a look at Act 3, where God chooses a people to call his own. And it reminds me of the very first time that I laid eyes on this young, cute girl, eighth grader. She was uh, playing the role of Dorothy in Pete Jr. High's production of The Wizard of Oz. And the minute she sang Somewhere Over the Rainbow... I was somewhere under her spell. Uh, I said to myself, I choose her. That girl's going to be my wife someday. Never mind, I was 15 years old. Um, I, I had no idea who she was. Uh, we wouldn't meet for three years. And yet this summer, she will have been my wife for 25 years. Yeah, amazing. I think back to the day I proposed, and I think about this proposal that we'll read about uh, today and uh, God's proposal to mankind. And I think about even other guys' proposals that I've heard their stories of what they've done. And I think back to my proposal and I can just hang my head in shame. Seriously, I, I really messed it up. And I stand in awe that she even said yes. But Acts 3, Act 3, it actually begins with what really amounts to a marriage proposal from God to Abraham, chapter 12 of Genesis. And, and then it ends in the final book of Malachi. So Genesis 12 through Malachi, we've got a lot of work to do today. That's what happens when you miss the teacher's team meeting. They make you that assignment. But on the pages in between, we see the good, the bad, and the ugly of this marriage between a faithful, a steadfast, just, and merciful God and his faithless, adulterous, fickle bride. 
And what I hope that you leave here today with is this reminder of the lengths that God goes to to show you this perfect love that he has for us and, and that he uses to win our love and our faithfulness to him. So as the uh, curtain closes on act two, um, the flood has taken place and, and the flood's over and God has blessed Noah's children and, and said the same thing that he said to Adam. He said, go uh, be fruitful and multiply. That was chapter nine. And by chapter 11 in Genesis, the whole thing is falling apart again. In fact, the people are erecting monuments to themselves and to the greatness of man and saying, we're like God and we're deserving of our own worship. And God says, I have another plan. And he reveals that plan as the curtain rises in Act 3, Genesis 12. begins this way. It says, the Lord has said to Abraham, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. It's like then one day, Abe was shooting at some food. When down came God with some news that was good, real good. Great nation, blessings from God. And the first thing you know, old Abe's moving on. His nephew and his wife with everything they own. God said, Canaan is the place you ought to be. So they traveled through the land to the site of a great tree. Mora, that is. Shechem, the promised land. All right, don't distract me. What's going on here, right? This is more than God coming and inviting Abram to go on this amazing road trip of a lifetime. God is looking for someone to share his life with. He wants to give himself to Abram in every possible way. He chooses Abram. He, he woos and pursues Abram with these amazing promises of how he will fulfill his love for Abram if Abram will just leave home and leave his family and join God in this new relationship. He says, I promise I'll bless you, meaning I'll make you happy. I'll make you into a great nation, which translated means we'll have lots of kids together. And come away with me. I'll make your name great. I can protect you. I can, if you let me, I can show the whole world how much I love them by the way I love you. It sounds to me an awful lot like a marriage proposal. In fact, the best proposal ever. You had me at hello. God chooses Abram and he uses marriage, the most intimate human relationship, as the picture of the relationship, the kind of relationship he wants to have with us. But I don't want you to think for a second that as he zeroes in on Abram, that he's rejecting others or that he's choosing a favorite. He's choosing a man through whom he can, he can have a family, start a family and build this great nation, to whom he can carry out his plan to rescue and, re and redeem the whole world. But God's not, a, not a interested in an exclusive community. He says, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And we're reading the Old Testament. It's important for us to zoom out and to remember and see that from the very beginning, God's plan is to have a community of people 
through whom he can bless the whole world. This plan isn't about just one man's relationship with God. His plan is for everyone who says yes to God to be blessed by God. But let's also be honest. The plan doesn't have a whole lot of detail in it. As God says, uh, hey, I want you to come with me to this land, and uh, I'll tell you where it is once we get there. (laughs) That's about like what I told my father-in-law when he asked me what my plan was for a job to support his wife once we got married. (laughs) I don't know yet. (laughs) I'll tell you when I get one. (laughs) Probably went about as well with uh, Abe's wife as it did with my (laughs) father-in-law. In fact, I may have had a leg up because Cindy's family knew me. They'd known me for quite some time. Okay, maybe that wasn't a leg up, but uh, this could very well be the first time that Abram even met God. We're told in the, in the book of Joshua that, that Abram's father actually worshipped other gods. And then I want you to consider this fact, that, that Abe and his wife have a pretty decent life going on right now when this happens. They're living in Haran. It's the commercial, cultural, religious center of the ancient world. They're successful They have lots of possessions, they have servants, they're well-connected, they're wealthy, they're comfortable, they're relatively secure, and they're old. They're really old. They're like 75. And God wants us to leave now? He wants us to leave our country and our culture and our family and our jobs and our home and all that's familiar and comfortable and all the people and the priorities that give our life meaning and value? trade all that for some risky and dangerous journey to an unknown place where we don't have any land, we don't have any family support, and we don't know anybody, including this God who's inviting us on this journey. These are real people. They have real concerns and questions, just like you and I do. And there's real risk here. But there's also real promise. And that promise is personal. Abram and his wife had had wanted all their lives to have a baby of their own. But sir, I could never get pregnant. And now God comes along and says, listen, if you follow me, I'll give you not just one child, but you'll have a whole nation of children. Can you imagine the hope that surged through Sarai when God comes and makes this promise to her? What would you do if God came and made you a deeply personal promise of blessing if you would just come and follow him? Would you accept that offer? Would you trust him and follow him? Maybe he's been inviting you for some time to take some challenging next step to put your faith in him so that he can show you the promise of his blessing. God asks Abram for only one thing in return. He says, trust me. Follow me into this new land and I will make good on my promises. So Abram went as the Lord told him. Abram said yes to God's proposal. And then a few pages later, we see that God makes it official by, by entering into this covenant relationship with Abram. It's an it's a unalterable, irrevocable commitment, complete with a, a ceremony that includes vows, just like the covenant of marriage. And the foundation of this covenant is just like the foundation of marriage. It's faithfulness. That's his faithfulness to the promises and the vows made to one another is the foundation of our relationship. Here's what's mind-blowing to me is we know uh, what God has promised to Abram, all of these amazing blessings. But what does God get in return? 
He gets an imperfect man who will make mistake after mistake, but who believes God enough to trust him for his promises and to follow him and build a faithful relationship with him. God pursues and woos us with this same great promise of love and abundant life, just like he did with Abram. When was the last time that you paused to consider the incredible covenant love that God offers you, the amazing promises that he makes to you, and the promises that you make in return to God? What might it look like for God to bless the whole world through us. Amazing to consider. Well, we should remember that God never promised Abram that everything would be peaches and cream if, uh, if he would leave and, and uh, listen to him and follow him. In fact, when God made the covenant with Abram, um, God tells Abram that one day his descendants will actually become enslaved in Egypt, but they should stay faithful because God would be with them and after 400 years of slavery, he would save them and bless them abundantly. 400 years of slavery. But trust me, trust me, all of a sudden that 50 years of marriage doesn't seem so bad to some of you, right? It's like, well, okay, 400 years. Learning to be married takes time. I remember those early years, you know, you're learning new things. There's some challenges that come along with it. I remember with Cindy trying to figure out how do we disagree? How do we argue? How do we fight fair? Now, we, we process things so differently. She was an out loud, you know, processor, an external processor. She liked to talk through things. Uh, I like to spend time on my own, think through them a little bit. That didn't go so well in those early days. You know, she's up trying to talk at night. I just want to go to bed. We'll talk about it in the morning. Give me some time away. That was a challenge. But after 25 years, those things have become a strength most of the time. And these things we start to see that, that maybe caused us some pause in the early years are really things that we cherish about each other today. And in 25 years of marriage, the other thing I noticed is there have been some amazing, amazing times where just great blessing, where our lives have just been so full of joy. But there have been also those periods of doubt, periods of discouragement, and even a few times when I've deliberately done the exact thing Cindy asked me not to do. But she keeps loving me, she keeps staying with me, and I can honestly say that nothing encourages growth more than somebody's faithful love. And as an adult, there's been no relationship uh, that has come close to shaping who I am today outside of my marriage. And that's what the rest of Genesis is really about. God's chosen people experience great blessing, but they also have times of doubt and times of discouragement and even deliberate disobedience as they're learning who God is and what it means to be married to him. And after rescuing, from, from, uh, after rescuing them from slavery, God gives them a law to follow. He tries to help them out in his grace. He says, let me give you a law that will help you protect this relationship that we have, that will help you know how to be faithful to me. And we read all through the Psalms about how good and pleasing and perfect this law is. And yet we also read serious warnings about that law and about if we disobey God's law. In Deuteronomy 28, we read this. It says, however, if you do not obey the Lord your God and do not carefully follow all his commands and decrees I am giving you today, all these curses will come on you and overtake you. 
In other words, there are serious consequences to choosing to be unfaithful to God. He disciplines those he loves. And he goes on, he lays out some specific consequences in that passage. And he says that eventually your bad choices will destroy you and they will kill you. He reminds us that he's a God of justice. Justice is at the core of who he is, just like love is at the core of who he is. And when you choose to be unfaithful to God, you actually walk away from his blessing into serious trouble. God longs for his people to remain faithful to him so that they can be blessed by him. And then we read Joshua takes his people into this land that he had promised to give to Abram. And things go really well at first because Joshua had encouraged all the people to serve God and put him first. And then Joshua dies and there aren't any leaders to take his place and the people become complacent and they start to lose their spiritual momentum. And God's people just can't seem to escape the curse of Adam's sin. And they start worshiping other gods And just as God warned, there are consequences to their behavior and their unfaithfulness, and they walk away from God's promise of protection, and they find themselves oppressed again. And so God sends someone to bring them back and to rescue them, and they're faithful for a time, and they enjoy God's blessing, and they become complacent. And they disobey God. And for 325 years, we just sang about this, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. This is what we see for over 325 years. As God sends judge after judge to lead them back to him and demonstrate his steadfast love for his people. But the final verse of Judges sums up this period. It says, in those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. So in the middle of this act, we see it's a huge mess. Everyone's for themselves. They, they trusted their own opinion of what's right and wrong and believe that was the ultimate authority in their lives. And they, and they rejected God. They asked him for a king to lead them instead. So God gives them what they want. In the first couple kings, it goes okay. First king unites the kingdom and then King David comes along and there's a period of peace and prosperity. And there's actually an opportunity for everything to be made right again and for complete restoration of God's blessing. But once David is gone, things fall apart again. Heavy taxation leads to to civil war within the country and and the two nations divide into two separate kingdoms. The one nation divides into two separate kingdoms. The north refuses to listen to God and they turn to, to worship idols instead and to worship other gods. And the south again becomes spiritually complacent and forgets all that God had done for them. And so now God starts to send messengers like Isaiah, like David shared with us uh, earlier today. Sends messengers, these prophets who try to get the people to turn back to God. But they refuse to listen. They become so enamored with, with sin and so enamored with this other way of life that their hearts were hard towards God. And they become wildly unfaithful, immoral, and unjust. And one of the prophets that God sends during this time was named Hosea. And God tells Hosea, he says, I have a special message for you to do. Only I don't want you to just speak this message to my people, Hosea. I want you to do something special for me. I need you to show them, actually, what it looks like for me to be married to such an unfaithful people. The story begins this way. 
says, when the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, go, marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her. For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. The NIV cleans the beginning of this story up considerably. If you actually read the original language or the King James Version, it says, I want you to go and marry a woman of whoredom and have children of whoredom for the land has committed great whoredom. God uses strong language and he repeats it three times. He's making a strong point with an exclamation mark. He's saying, listen, God's people, my people, the people I chose to be mine have gotten into bed with pagan gods and they become so immersed in idolatry, they've forgotten who God is and how faithful God had been to the promises he'd given to them. He'd given them their land and rather than thank God for this land and this gift that he'd given them, rather than ask him for the things they needed, the rain that they needed for the crops in order to be successful and prosperous, they instead turned to a Baal, a God of fertility. And they did all sorts of sinful things to try to get these these Baals to respond to them, including new forms of worship, ritual prostitution in the temples. And God is saying to Hosea, listen, I want you to go marry a woman like that. A woman who has done nothing to earn your love. In fact, a woman who will do wicked things and will walk away from you and will hurt you in many ways. I remember my wedding day. Our first dance at our reception was to Mark Cohen's song, True Companion. Some of you remember that song? It was a beautiful moment. It was a beautiful day. It was perfect. Everything was perfect, especially the bridesmaid dresses. <laughs> Brings a tear to your eye, doesn't it? <laughs> Brings a tear to my wife's eye if she knew. I was thinking, God, she's in Haiti. doesn't know that picture's up there. <laughs> there were definitely tears that day, not just my father-in-law. There were tears of joy, right? Weddings are, are these incredible moments where you have all the love of the moment colliding with all the hopes and the dreams of this perfect future that you are thinking about on that day. Just come smashing together. There's a lot of emotion. Hosea gets none of this. And if Hosea is, is shedding any tears that day, they're tears of a whole other kind. He's, he says, go get a woman who has done nothing to earn your love. A woman he knows is going to cheat on him. Story continues. It says, so... He married Gomer, daughter of Diblin, and she conceived and bore him a son. And then she has a daughter, and then she has another son. And it's not super clear in the story, but it seems that Hosea is not the true father of at least two of these children, because we're told in chapter two that their mother has been unfaithful and has conceived them in disgrace. She chases after other lovers, and she returns pregnant. And she pretends to love Hosea again to get what she needs. And then once her children are weaned, she runs off again and finds another lover, only to come back and repeat that all over again. And so the Lord says to Hosea, he says, I want you to name, give, give the, these names to your children. He said, to your first son, I want you to name him Jezreel, which means the Lord scatters. And to your daughter, name her Lo Ruhamah, which means not loved, 
or not, no mercy, or not pity, depending on the translation. And God says, name your youngest son Lo-Ami, which means not my people. And God is saying to those people that he had chosen to be his, I will no longer show you the tender mercy of my personal affection, for you are no longer my people, and you are about to be scattered from this land that I gave to you. They had broken the covenant. They had severed their relationship with God, and God's justice is in full view. His anger at their continual disobedience has reached a boiling point. He wants a faithful bride. Our tendency is to minimize our own sin, to hide, hide it or to justify it. But the Old Testament shows us that God does not minimize sin. God is serious about sin. And whether we're caught off guard in the passion of a moment or whether it's a deliberate, thought-out act, our sin today is the equivalent of Israel's idol worship and worship of other gods. When we place something or someone in place of God in our lives, it's, it's an act of spiritual adultery. And our sin wreaks havoc and results in all kinds of damage to us and to others. And because God, thankfully, at his core, is a just God, he is not willing to look past the pain that our sin causes others. His glory will not be diminished by our choices. So he has consequences for sins. And page after page throughout the story of Hosea, he starts to list these sins and the serious, horrifying consequences the people will face as a result of their sin. And it's really, really hard to read. But then we come to chapter 11. And we actually see God lament at the sin of his people. His, we see that God's people not only broke the law, they actually broke his heart. And we read this, we read these words. God says, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. But the more they were called, the more they went away from me. They sacrificed to the Baals and they burned incense to images. It was I who taught them to walk, taking them by the arms, but they did not realize it was I who healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. To them, I was, I was like one who lifts a little child to the cheek and I bent down to feed them. Will they not return to Egypt and will not Assyria rule over them because they refuse to repent? A sword will flash in their cities. It will devour their false prophets and put an end to their plans. My people are determined to turn from me. Even though they call me God most high, I will by no means exalt them. But how can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? My heart is changed within me. All my compassion is aroused. I will not carry out my fierce anger, nor will I devastate Ephraim again, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One among you. 
Amazing words. God says to Hosea, I'm not like man. My love is so far superior. It's infinitely greater. My love is eternal. And even when man chooses to be unfaithful, I will remain faithful to the promises I have made. And even though they betray me time and time again, I will show them kindness and mercy. I will never let go. And God goes and he tells Hosea, go find your love who's become a slave to another man and buy her back, Hosea. Rescue her and love her again. Show my people that I will redeem them in this same way because nothing can separate them from my love. I'm gonna come and I will speak with great compassion and great tenderness. And instead of them calling me master, they're gonna call me their husband. I'm gonna, I'm gonna tie themselves Uh, tie myself to them in a permanent, lasting relationship. And he paints this beautiful picture of how Jesus will one day bring God's perfect justice and love together on the cross and bring back all those who he called not my people, all those who he called not loved, he will bring together in Christ. And they will be completely restored and they will live in a blessed relationship with him forever. Act three of the Bible does not end well. Both kingdoms will actually fall and the north will never return. But that's not where the story ends. God remains committed to his people and his plan and his promise. And just as he sends Hosea to find his lost and unfaithful bride, to buy her back and to love her, God sends his own son, Jesus, who gives his life to buy us back. And one day, this whole broken world will be restored to to everyone who says yes to Jesus. Every knee will bow. There will be this new creation. I spent an afternoon reading the whole book of Hosea in one sitting on my deck back in February, when it was summer in February. (laughs) And it occurred to me I can be a real Gomer. (laughs) I can be just like Gomer in so many different ways, just as unfaithful as Gomer was. And it looks different. Sure, it looks different. But I was deeply convicted how easy it is for me to turn to other things, other people, to give my life meaning and to give my life value, to to turn towards accomplishments or affirmation from other people or, or comforts or pleasure. And at the same time, I was reminded and I was overwhelmed at how good and how big and how life-giving God's love is and how desperately I need it every day. So that night, I just was compelled. I just got down on my knees that night and I just prayed to God and I, I thanked him for his faithfulness and I confessed my own unfaithfulness my own complacency, my own apathy. And I asked God if he would just renew his steadfast love in me. And maybe some of you are like me and you don't even realize it, but you've been unfaithful to God, sort of complacent. Maybe you've been feeling a little more entitled than thankful. Or maybe you've been betraying and rejecting God intentionally and deliberately 
for a short time or for a long time. It doesn't matter. I think what God wants us to see in Act 3, and especially in this profound little book of Hosea, is that we should never be afraid to turn back to him. That God pursues us with a relentless love, and if we will just be faithful to turn to him, we will find this love waiting for us, this kindness, this mercy, and this grace that completely restores us. It's the very truth that Paul declares in his letter to the Romans. He says, God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. We're in a season of Lent, a season of deep reflection, really a season of repentance. What better time than to turn to God and seek that repentance today? Ask him to make us new. Would you pray with me? Father, we learn a lot about who you are and who we are in this Act 3 of the Bible. Father, you are the faithful one. We are not. Father, you are just. We are not. Your love never gives up. Father, this story is a story that... um, It continues today and finds fulfillment in Jesus. And and one day he will bring complete restoration to our broken world. Your mercy, your love, your kindness is intended to lead us to repentance. And so we pause and we ask you to examine our hearts right now, Father. That we might confess our sin and we might receive your restoring love. Father, we have not loved you with our whole heart with our whole soul, with our mind and our strength. We confess that we haven't loved our neighbors as ourselves. Father, we haven't forgiven others as you have forgiven us. And we're often too proud to turn to you. And our hypocrisy and impatience causes us to stumble all too often. Father, we confess our anger. We ask you to forgive our envy for those who are more fortunate than us. Father, we confess that we've pursued worldly goods and pleasures and been dishonest in our work. We've been complacent and negligent in our prayer and worship. And we've been blind to injustice and to others' needs and suffering. Lord, we ask that you'd have mercy on us, that you'd forgive us and restore us so that we can become the people through whom you bless our broken world. It's in your name we pray. Amen.